one thing you you talked about your 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 contract I think is up May Day uh, twenty yeah. twenty when is when what year twenty twenty eight no it's four year deal yeah yeah four it's be four and a half years so yes and and the idea that other unions negotiate similar contracts with similar dates so a sort of uh, you know a, a, a sort of um, additive power to the the, the, the threat of strike. What do you think the, the lesson has been from this year, not just for the United Auto Workers, but we've seen it with yeah. the Writers Guild, we've seen it with SAG-AFTRA, we've seen it with flight attendants, we've seen it across uh, the labor movement and across working people in this country, the, the, the most amount of strike activity we've seen in a generation. Uh, you know, look, uh, working class people are fed up, union or not, and, and I think, you know, COVID taught us a valuable lesson. People reflected on what's important in life. And what's important in life is not working seven days a week, 12 and 16 hours a day, or working multiple jobs, scraping to get by, living paycheck to paycheck. People want a life, and that's not a life. And so I, I think that's what people are seeing now is, is the pathway to having a better life is by organizing and joining a union. And so uh, I, I was very ecstatic we got May Day as, as an expiration date. And uh, I look forward to not just unions in this nation, but in this world to align our dates. and. Uh, that's one thing we learned in that process is we have the power. When we withhold our labor, no matter where people work, uh, nothing moves. The billionaire class, the corporate class can build all the factories or businesses they want, but if there aren't people there to do the work, nothing's gonna move. And so we have to harness that power, come together and organize and work together and stand together, and we'll take our lives back. One thing you, yeah. you talked about your no need to play it twice. Yes, folks. Uh, UAW President Sean Fain there talking about how, uh, yes, unions should align to uh, extract leverage during political campaign season uh, in 2028. I think that is uh, something as, you know, I've seen a few political campaign seasons as a actual professional um, media member. And I'll say the greater the union presence is there, I think the better shape we're in. So, uh, that's great to see. Hello everybody. I am a uh, Matt. David is still on a Thanksgiving break. Uh, he'll be back uh, later this week uh, for our Sunday show. Uh, we have an interview that we conducted with Brian Meyer last week of Telesur, uh, the B Meyer, uh, uh, dot Um, who's done, you know, Michael, uh, folks who have watched the show for a while will know that Michael worked with Brian in the Lula interview. Uh, he's been a, a long time uh, guest of uh, both uh, TMBS and, uh, and this program uh, as the, uh, as the creator of Brazil wire. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to get to that. I do just want to say I can't stand the Will Stansel stuff. Anybody getting really upset with like the Biden economy is great. Uh, look at it's just TikTok that makes people don't understand it. Like, bro, I, I, I need somebody here to uh, otherwise just be complaining. But I, it's driving me nuts, man. Like, yeah, okay, people think that the economy, uh, it thought the economy was better in 2019, but some metrics it's not better. Like. It's all relative. I remember what the 2010s were like. It was all engine recovery from 2008, which wiped everybody out. <laughs> like, so yeah, like, anyways, uh, if people's expectations have risen, good. 
Uh, I hope to continue contributing to that problem and Democrats should figure out how to navigate those waters instead of just uh, yelling at the waves. But uh, yeah, uh, without any further ado, here's that uh, talk we did with Brian about the long coup in Brazil. Welcome back, Left Reckoners. Uh, I'm Matt Leck. With me, as always, David Griscom. Hello, David. What's up, brother? Uh, not much. And joining us today is Brian Meyer. Brian is correspondent with Telesur English, uh, also the proprietor of the B. Meyer uh, Substack, and uh, author of a recent article, Anti-Corruption and Imperialist Blind Spots: The Role of the United States in Brazil's long coup that is in latin american perspectives brian um you know we've been talking about this lula lava jato stuff for a while the first time that uh, i've seen it discussed in a scholarly journal uh, just talk a little bit about uh, getting this uh published okay well um it kind of started out of this what's up group that i'm in with a couple of the other people from brazil wire and then gradually as time you know, went by, we invited some academics into it who write about Brazil who we liked, some Brazilian, some American, and a couple other people, Camila Escalante is in the group, and, um, you know, Natalia Urban, who writes for Brazil Wire a lot. And, um, but anyway, like three years ago, I mean, okay, so when the Intercept uh, leaks, when Intercept finally got around after 96 articles published about Lava Jato Operation Car Wash to doing the article in a smaller publication, uh, Agencia Publica, about US, about all the proof, overwhelming proof, you know, of things like a group of 17 FBI agents led by Leslie Beck. She's meeting with the um, Operation Car Wash Lava Jato task force every two weeks for five years, strategizing how to basically how to arrest Lula and things like that. After all that came out, some people were still, you know, kind of denying or downplaying or refusing to talk about it all, uh, including among those people is Glenn Greenwald. Uh, U.S. involvement in the whole process. And um, I'm someone who, whenever I see a coup against a left-wing government going on in Latin America, I start from the point of view that the U.S. must be involved somehow, especially if you look at the evidence, like who's benefiting from it? What are the companies that are benefiting from it? In the case of the coup against Dilma Rousseff, it was Chevron, Exxon, you know, um, Cargill, uh, uh, mining companies, the, the regular players in all of the coups in the history of Latin America. And then you saw the way that the media was treating it. Um, basically just running Operation Car Wash, Wash Task Force uh, press releases as if they were articles, not ever questioning any of the narrative or anything like that. So I had a strong feeling that the U.S. was involved. That's why I started writing for Brazil Wire, really. Um, it's why I started dedicating more time on journalism. Um, and, uh, and so after years of writing about it, I've pub I published more than 40 articles about U.S. involvement in Lava Jato. When The Intercept came out with that article about the, you know, showing the leaked conversations between FBI agents and Lava Jato task force and calling Lula's uh, arrest a gift from the CIA and things like that, we were just talking like, what can we do? to enshrine this all 
as science, you know, as fact, since so many people are still just not talking about it or denying it. And so um, I think it was Brian Pitts, who's one of the authors. He's written some stuff in NACLA and Brazil Wire as well. He's the vice, uh, the assistant dean of Latin American studies at UCLA. He's like, well, why don't we just try and write an academic article about it? That way, you know, if it's reviewed by peers mm -hmm. in the academic writing process, the, the peer review kind of establishes things as fact in academia. And academia feeds into uh, journalism. You know, a lot of journalists have this huge inferiority complex with university professors. And um, so we were like, what can we do to make that happen? So we built this team of five writers. At first, I was just like, doesn't that seem like it's too many writers? I mean, like authors, that's insane. How can you write an article with five people? No, no, in academia, this is, this is really popular now. You know, mm -hmm. Sean Mitchell was another guy who was, got on board very early on it. No, this is how they do it now. Don't worry about it. So, okay. So we spent like a year and a half working on the article. We each wrote sections. And so my section was the section just establishing the, the, the proof of U.S. involvement. Uh, and their sections were on things like, um, you know, motive, background, 64 coup, analysis, you know, what's been written about it in Brazilian academia, which is more than in U.S. And uh, then we had the process of like trying to get it published. The first place rejected it. Uh, it was a more conservative place. And finally, Latin American perspective said, okay, we'll, we'll run it. Um, can you get the draft down to like 9,000 words or whatever? Like, so there's this back and forth, which is very common in academia of like a year and a half going back and forth, you know, and then uh, they send it to uh, other academics who are anonymous, who review the article and ask questions, ask you to add things. Then they took our draft pretty well. They just asked for a little bit more, you know, context, make it clear that we're not, um, trying to defend the Workers' Party against any or all um, acts of corruption in the history of the party or something like that, you know? And, mm -hmm. uh, and so finally they said, okay, it's ready for the September issue. And so that's the issue that just came out because the, <laughs> the, the, it's academia, things run, <laughs> run slow. You know, so September issue is coming out now in November. Mm -hmm. But um, so that's, that's the process behind it. And the thing that makes it different from all the other stuff that's been published about Lava Jato in the US is that this is an actual like scientific academic paper, which establishes the involvement as fact in academia, you know, so now it's harder for people to just shrug it off, accuse me or anyone else of being a conspiracy theorist, you know, or, or just ignoring the information if they want to be taken seriously as academics uh, and journalists who are writing about Brazil. Yeah, because now if somebody wants to write about this, they at least have to, even if they want to write about it from a pro-U.S. or pro-Lava Jato standpoint, they at least have to mention this article. Otherwise, it's an oversight that is, you know, looks bad to their credibility. And I'll just say any young students listening to this show that are writing papers, cite this one if, it's, uh, <laughs> if, if you can get it in there. Um, <laughs> Uh, because I do appreciate how to, to read, you know, a scholarly uh, uh, article and all the uh, methodologies that are useful in sort of determining truth. 
Um, uh, and also to have you be unapologetically uh, anti-imperialist uh, in outlook about it, I think is re really important because, I mean, let's back up to this 1964 coup because actually the way that we pass that down through history is kind of the worry that we could do with Lava Jato here with American involvement, which is just like America's just supporting stuff. They're not really like, there's nothing nefarious going on. It's just like they have support. So can you tell us about the 1964 coup? Well, um, it's a, it's kind of a downer for people who like, uh, John F. Kennedy. <laughs> That's fine. And, That's good. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, in, uh, in extension, Robert Kennedy Jr. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> um, basically, uh, uh, there was a little, okay, it was height of the Cold War, first of all, height of the Cold War, right? But um, like most cases of coups that took place in Latin America during the Cold War, Cold War paranoia and anti-communism was used as a pretext to get rid of leaders that were interested in doing things like um, nationalizing or keeping nationalized key sectors of industry, such as the petroleum you know, a big one we see, the first coup ever orchestrated by the CIA was because Iran didn't want to privatize its petroleum. And you just go down the line of petroleum company, countries that have been coup. And so, um, uh, there was the, the president, Gianni Cuadros, uh, was elected, he resigned, and the vice president, who was from a different party, Django Goulart, much farther leftist, he took office as the vice president and started doing a lot of things that the U.S. didn't like, like guaranteeing that they wouldn't privatize petroleum, trying to uh, renationalize a, a U.S. mining company, um, uh, working on redistributive um, uh, uh, policies that would um, hurt like the, the elites in Brazil who were very connected to the U.S. government. Uh, geopolitically, he recognized Cuba, you know, and um, so this enabled the uh, people in the U.S., especially the corporate sector, to um, to label him as a communist, even though at the time uh, Ted Kennedy and and they started building this narrative that in 1962, 1963, that a communist revolution was like a big risk in Brazil, and at the time Ted went down uh, on you know on behalf of his brother to check things out. Like he went to Pernambuco where I live and he went and he hung out with some of these um, peasant activist groups that called the, the peasant leagues in the countryside. And he came back and said, these guys aren't going to have a communist coup. These are just people who are trying to, um, you know, stop starving to death. They're super poor. They're just trying to get land distribution so they can farm on their own lands. But uh, didn't listen to his little brother. Uh, and uh, they started doing the groundwork. Apparently, I've heard that John F. Kennedy asked, um, not Nelson, what's the other Rockefeller? It's John Rockefeller and Nelson Rockefeller, right? So he, yeah. he asked John Rockefeller to start a kind of think tank that would um, serve as an intermediary between uh, American corporations and um, Brazilian business elites. And this has mer um, merged and grown over the years to the point where it's now called ASCOA, America's Society Council of the Americas. It was a key player in the coup in 1973 in Chile, and they ran 
non-stop propaganda in favor of Operation Car Wash. That's, that's just a side note there about them. And they have a revolving door with the New York Times. Their ex-assistant editor of their uh, quarterly publication, Americans Quarterly, Juliana Barbaza, became the Times Latin American desk editor a couple years ago. Um, and uh, one of their, their board, um, their operational president is John Negro Ponte, you know, who has a dirty history in Latin America in the, in the 80s and Iran-Contra and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, the CIA started um, financing protests, conservative protests um, called um, tradition, family, and homeland protests. And these are themes that were returned to by Bolsonaro uh, uh, when, he, when he was campaigning and stuff. He went back to these themes, traditional family, uh, homeland, you know, and, um, and so basically during, there's a, there's audio recordings of, um, the U S ambassador talking to John F. Kennedy about cooing Brazil, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's come out in the last couple of years, Lincoln Gordon. Um, and, uh, but Kennedy, uh, unfortunately was assassinated. I'm not going to go off on that subject very much. I think, there's some theories. Matt will do that later. We can leave it. But we'll leave that part out. And Lyndon Johnson took over. And so the, the military orchestrated this coup. Um, they rode down in tanks from a mountain city called Juiz de Fora in Minas Gerais to Rio de Janeiro a couple hours, um, occupied the city, which was the capital at this point still. It was the, Brasilia was officially, but Rio was really the real operating capital. They said, we've taken the country. At the time, there was this uh, military operation called Operation um, Brother Sam or something. Where, That's um, right, yeah. I where that from Lyndon article. Johnson had sent a bunch of aircraft carriers and warships off the coast of Rio de Janeiro to step in and back up the Brazilian military if they needed. But they weren't needed because as Jacob Gorander a revolutionary in Marxist intellectual and underground guerrilla fighter in the 1960s uh, said at the time, the Trotskyists were arguing with the Stalinists, you know, the anarchists were arguing with the Marxist Leninists and the left couldn't organize a, uh, a unified front against the coup. Uh, and also Django himself kind of waffled. The one place where they took up arms to fight against the coup was in the state of Rio Grande do Sul, which is kind of like the Texas of uh, Brazil in many ways, except it's more socialist than Texas. And uh, that was under Lionel Brazola, the governor at the time. And uh, he was ready, but he, he said, Django, just give me the orders, you know, and Django was like, I'm out of here. He fled the country. And so that attempt at armed resistance fizzled out. And for the next 21 years, Brazil was ruled by a brutal U.S.-backed military dictatorship. The U.S. gave training on torture. Uh, it armed the police. It armed the military. Um, the military government, in turn, gave some sweetheart deals to American corporations operating in Brazil. Didn't go as far as the U.S. had wanted. They maintained a kind of developmentalist economic strategy through a lot of it. But... Uh, Basically, that's, that's how it happened. Uh, as I was researching this article I just wrote about Rosalind Carter, 
I saw a conversation between the Bishop of Sao Paulo and Jimmy Carter in 1978, when Carter made his official visit there. And Bishop um, Evaristo Arns, he asked, uh, Carter's like, you know, I'm very suspicious that the CIA has been training our military on torture. You know, can you confirm that this has happened? And Carter was like, well, that's a sensitive issue. I can't confirm or deny it. And so he was like, well, by your answer, I know that it's true. And mm -hmm. history has come out to prove that he was right. Yeah. yeah, well, and we're just, I mean, we, we saw what happened in Argentina this week with Malay coming back. But I, I mean, so I've been thinking about the Operation Condor, and it's almost like a precursor to Operation Condor, uh, it sounds like. Exactly. Brazil was like the first one of the big military coups in Latin America in the 60s. And then we had um, Uruguay, Paraguay, Argentina, Chile, you know, and then... The U.S. created this program, Operation Condor, which uh, was based around like facilitating relationships between all these dictators and strengthening them all and um, giving them support on attacking and persecuting communists. Yeah, all in the name of anti-communism. Huh? Right. Yeah. All in the communist, name of anti-communism. Yeah. Communist just means I'm doing a... Um, uh, Dr. Scare Evil quotes. scare quotes here yeah. from Austin Powers. <laughs> Communists just mean like labor union leader, student activist. Mm -hmm. You know, doesn't necessarily mean communist. Didn't necessarily mean communist. Although many of them did identify with communist parties at that point. You know, and in that context is is so important. I mean, we're we're talking about Malay a little bit later in the program, but um, you see, like the right wing in in this country. Um, you know, some of the troll accounts, things like that, making fun of um, Argentine folks who, you know, might be feeling a little emotional after seeing like a far right leader being elected in, in the country. And it's like, yeah, well, the, you know, with people who are living within living memory of a dictatorship and brutal right wing, uh, you know, breakdowns of, 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 of normal working class people. Um, yeah, I don't know. These things aren't too far off. And the same thing is with uh, when it comes to Brazil, obviously, too, yeah. um, that I think the lack of, of knowledge... <clears throat> of uh you know the, the dictatorship the history the, the american involvement also let a lot of american not just conservatives as we all know um but liberals be very uh glib about uh what was yeah. under threat when somebody like bolsonaro comes into power in brazil yeah, there's this whole um false narrative that was built over the years i think uh we addressed some of these narratives a little bit in the article mm -hmm. kathy swartz one of the writers who's a specialist on that Era. But there's this kind of narrative that, oh, Brazil was like the kindler, gentler dictatorship. Mm -hmm. because I've heard that so many times, Brian, just yeah. saying, like, that's the yeah. kind of classic line I've, I've heard. It's like, oh, you know, you hear dictatorship and it's scary and obviously it's bad. But no, in Brazil, it was like, it was just a normal thing. It was just the kind of government they needed at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, so what, what happened is that for years, the official death count of political assassinations during the dictatorship was in the hundreds. And if you look at Argentina, it was like 40,000. Argentina was the most brutal. Chile was like 4,000, which is a much smaller population. So, But Dilma Rousseff reopened all the archives. It's one of the reasons she got cooed, because none of the military involved, uh, they all got amnesty. Like No one was ever punished. And many of them were still in the military and you see that happen, what happened when Bolsonaro took office. Bolsonaro was in the military during the dictatorship. All of the generals he appointed at the top 
uh, posts, most of them, almost all of them were active in the dictatorship. General Augusto Heleno, Heleno, who was like his right-hand man, who was the architect of the Sitsole massacre in Haiti, um, he was the personal attaché to the leader of the neo-Nazi cell within the military, the hardliners called the Tigrada, the Tigers, who were the ones who rejected a return to democracy, who kept torturing and killing people after the um, General Figueredo ordered them to stop. And so um, what Rousseff did was she reopened it and they updated the numbers. It's like, no, it's not in the hundreds, it's 8,942 documented official political assassinations, but there's still all kinds of missing cases. And there are things they did like uh, when they're building highways into the Amazon, there are cases of them just going into like an indigenous village with thousands of people living in it and just machine gunning down every man, woman and child in one day, which is one of the atrocities they committed. And also just tens of thousands of cases of torture, obviously, you know, brutal, brutal torture. Um, you can read about that in Lula's biography, which is coming out next year, that his brother was brutally tortured by the dictatorship. And so, I mean, like, I know people, a lot of people were around, I know people who were arrested during the dictatorship, were tortured during the dictatorship. And there's other things they never even talk about in the US, like um, in Sao Paulo, in the early 80s, the governor under the dictatorship, Paulo Maluf, he gave an order to the police to arrest anybody who didn't have a, couldn't prove that they had a, a legal job when they're walking down the street. And so I had a friend, a black guy from um, Maranhão, came down to Sao Paulo, it was his first week in Sao Paulo, out on the street, resumes in hand, looking for a job. He couldn't show that he had a job, so he was beaten up and imprisoned for two weeks. You know, this kind of stuff. Obviously, clamping down harder on black people at this time because of the racist ideology behind the dictatorship, which traces its roots back to this fascist movement in the 1930s that was very closely connected to the Nazis called the Integralists, uh, you know, uh, which many of their principles were applied by the Bolsonaro government when he took office, you know, and they used a lot of Integralist symbolism and slogans and things like that. Well, well, you know, let's um, bring some of that context in, in, into some of the more recent events. I mean, you've been covering this, um, you know, you spent years covering this. Obviously, we've had you on, on Left Reckoning and over the years with the Michael Brooks show uh, to talk about it. But, you know, maybe let's say some person is just turning on, uh, you know, their, their first Brian Muir interview, their first Left Reckoning interview. Could you make this this case clear for people who might still have doubts about the United States role in Lava Jato? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's just on that note. Sorry, Brian, but like, yeah, the long coup, I've you, using that term for it. What is the long coup? Mm -hmm. The long coup is the process that started in 2013 with this kind of color revolution that was orchestrated on Facebook, mostly, uh, that started uh, as a movement for fr the right to free public transportation, which is a very noble cause, which I... Uh, I backed that. It was actually one of the um, platform issues and objectives of the PT in the 1990s. Luisa Erundina tried to do it when she was mayor of Sao Paulo. It's a good thing. But these small protests were immediately like blown up using social media technology. There were people receiving like um, uh, an invitation to a protest every minute on their Facebook accounts at this time. And as they started blowing up, 
they were hijacked into something else with big support from um, algorithm manipulation on Facebook and the mainstream media here uh, to damage Rousseff's image, but they couldn't damage it enough to prevent her from being reelected. She was reelected anyway. And then uh, immediately afterwards, the losing candidate refused to accept the results of the election. He said they'd been stolen. He was the guy who had hired David Axelrod's former PR company to run his social media accounts during the election season. Um, and so all of a sudden, part of this big coalition that Lula had stitched together of all the different 29 parties that were represented in Congress at the time, part of them switched sides. And so they just gridlocked Congress. And um, that's when the Lava Jato investigation started getting all this attention in the media. So uh, all of a sudden, uh, in, the, in the media, people were just bombarded with um, hours and hours of coverage about what a huge problem corruption was. And then they started uh, steering this, this vindication about corruption against the PT party. And in 2015, a year, you know, the next year after, really the year Rousseff started her second term, this judge, Sergio Moro, who has been uh, treated as a hero in the US, in, the, in Brazil and everything, he simply ordered Brazil's five largest construction and engineering firms to paralyze all of their projects because they, they were under investigation for corruption, because he was accusing uh, his, his task force that he controlled was accusing individual business executives in these companies of taking bribes or giving bribes. And instead of treating them as too big to fail, he froze all of their activities for six months and bankrupted them all. Um, he also froze Petrobras State Petroleum Company's shipbuilding industry. And so all of a sudden, like no roads were being built. Fernando Haddad in Sao Paulo to stop all of his cycle lane constructions. Nothing was being built. Um, the end result, according to Diezi, which is this uh, labor union, this very respected uh, labor union um, think tank that analyzes uh, employment and economics and things like that, minimum wage, they estimate that over um, 4 million people ended up losing their jobs, directly and indirectly. Direct job losses were immediate half a million. This caused uh, there was a minor recession going on. Our friends at uh, CEPR, Mike Wyatt, Mark Weisbrot, and Dan Beaton, they produced a report saying Brazil's economy was fundamentally solid. There was a bit of a bust cycle starting in commodities, and they had miscalculated the selic rate. And this was what was causing a minor recession that was going to be over shortly because all the fundamentals were there. The country had $360 billion in foreign reserves. It wasn't broke or anything like Argentina is right now. And, uh, and this all together with this constant barrage of anti-corruption uh, um, slander, as it turns out, against Dilma Rousseff, because she was never even accused of committing any corruption, really. Um, she, was, she was impeached on a technicality that she was later exonerated from. Um, that caused her popularity to plummet, which set the scene for her impeachment. So th this is how the coup progressed, right? And then part two of what we call the long coup was preventing Lula, who was wildly popular from winning the 2018 presidential election by arresting him on uh, fabricated charges that have been completely disproven, you know? So that's, that's what the long coup is, okay?
Yeah. And um, I could explain how the U.S. was involved now. Yeah, one thing, well, before we do that, uh, one thing I just, you note in there, the, uh, the effect on society, both the rise in inequality... And and I've also noticed, like, the, the first Lula era saw a uh, drop in deforestation, uh, and then you saw a massive rise in it during the Bolsonaro era. So, like, it also a massive impacts in terms of material effects on our world. Yes, definitely. Um, Bolsonaro tried to restore the World Bank-inspired military dictatorship plan for the Amazon, which is basically just to rip it all down and develop it, mm. develop it, you know. Uh, exploit all of the natural resources, the gold and all that stuff. Um, and that was wreaked a lot of havoc and it's still, you know, hard to control. It's a very huge lawless area. The Amazon rainforest is bigger than the continental United States. It's very sparsely populated. Uh, there's a lot of like radar free, uh, radar blackout zones over it. Um, there's no roads in most of it. And, uh, but yeah, uh, and it it's going down again since he took office. I mean, Bolsonaro gutted all of the regulatory agencies and he even put pro loggers and agribusiness people in charge of some of those agencies. So, yeah. All right. So, yeah, the uh, the U.S. involvement. OK, I break it into three sections, you know, just to explain it very, very concisely. The first section is uh, in Uncle Sam's own words. <clears throat> this is the, the thing that I found most ridiculous. Um, starting in 2014 and 2015, you see legal blogs talking about these cases that were underway against Brazilian companies in the Southern District Court of New York, mostly in the Southern District of New York. Um, and some of them in the in the articles and stuff, they say, well, this is part of a, a, co a collaboration between the uh, Department of Justice and the Brazilian Public Ministry and Brazilian, you know, federal police and the SEC. Some of them start mentioning it. But then in 2016, the Department of Justice started uh, putting this information in their own press releases after a three point five billion dollar settlement against um, Odebrecht and Braskem, which is, Braskem is a subsidiary of Petrobras Petroleum Company. But it was the largest corruption case in American history. And so in the New York Times article at the time, they say, well, this is part of an investigation called Operation Car Wash that's been done jointly between the Department of Justice and uh, you know Brazilian public prosecutors, Brazilian Justice Department. And uh, so there's... There's uh, four press releases that were issued by the Department of Justice explaining this. So after years later, when Hank, Congressman Hank Johnson opened an inquiry in Congress with a letter signed by 14 other members of Congress um, about the DOJ's role in Lula's imprisonment, in the investigation that caused Lula's imprisonment and this and that, the response from the department of from the attorney general's office is like yeah of course we're this has been public knowledge we've announced this on our own website here are the links we've been we've been saying this since 2016. then in 2017 assistant acting assistant attorney general kenneth blanco gave a speech at the atlantic council that was you can still watch it on the on youtube 
in which he bragged about the excellent um, communications with the prosecutors in Operation Car Wash, Lava Jato, right? Like, uh, we, we have such a good relationship that we communicate informally, bypassing bureaucratic protocols that can slow down our, mm. our operations. So it's more agile because we're communicating informally. Well, that's a crime. That falls outside of the partnership agreement that the United States government made with Brazil, right? Through the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which I won't go into, it's in the article, you can read about that, but. Um, so that's illegal. That caused Lula's defense team in February. Uh, when I published an article about this in uh, October, August, I don't know, November, 2017. I pulled this part and published an article about it. And Lula's defense lawyers read the article. I got I got tipped off to it from an article in a Chilean newspaper in Spanish that mentioned the speech. That's how I found it, called Clarin, but not Argentinian Clarin, Chilean Clarin. Um, uh, so they they read it and they said, "Do you realize what this means?" You know. So they filed their first motion to dismiss all charges against Lula due to illegal collaboration with a foreign government. Right. That's also a matter of public record. So the first section of the proof is this, that the U.S. government has been admitting this for now for like seven years. Like it's absurd that I would get, or any other writer talking about would get gaslighted or accused of being a conspiracy theorist for citing actual government records. It was like the most maddening thing about it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second section is on the media. <clears throat> Both New York Times and Washington Post published articles in 2016 talking about the US Department of Justice partnership with Car Wash, you know? And this was in the, at a moment when, you know, Car Wash was being praised heavily in the media. So it was like, as a good thing. Um, and so, the, so we have those articles. In, in all, the New York Times published four articles mentioning um, car wash in the US government. But as of January 2017, it was all just whited out. Nothing else ever appeared about US involvement in the in the investigation in any major media outlet, even in left media outlets, you know, uh, even Jacobin USA example never mentioned it. Um, the nation didn't mention it. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know. I didn't look at in these times, but you know, anyway, I'm just using examples, but basically not, it was just like, it just disappeared from the media, but it's there. You can go back and read the articles in the New York times about us partnership in, in Lava Jato. Okay. And then the final section is just on the intercept leaks, you know, which, which we, I point out are, it was a little, it was a weird situation that they would publish 96 articles about illegal collusion between about the, the, the intercept leaks, really, they're not the intercept leaks. They're, it's called Operation Spoofing. A hacker named Walter Delgatti shared about 3% of uh, the six terabytes of <coughs> converse, chat conversations on Telegram that he had hacked into from the, Lava, the Operation Car Wash Task Force, Lava Jato Task Force, shared a, a couple, I don't know, 60 megabytes or something. I can't remember the exact number with Glenn Greenwald. And the Intercept worked for the next seven months, publishing 96 articles, 
showing illegal collusion between the judge and the prosecutors and people in the media, which is a huge deal. I mean, it contributed heavily to um, uh, destroying the image of the investigation in the mainstream media, even. Um, and he was clever the way he did it with mainly conservative mainstream media publications. He published these articles in, in partnership, he and the other people working with him in partnership with like the equivalent of the New York Times in Brazil, which is fully the Sao Paulo or the equivalent of Time magazine. Um, but, <clears throat> but I found it odd that they didn't mention the US until their 97th article, which was after, you know, COVID had started. And uh, this was already out of the headlines then. And they did it in a smaller publication, Agencia Publica, in its quasi-independent media company. And it eventually got published in the, in the US and English in, on Intercept's webpage as well. But you would think that would be like one of the first things they would say. Nevertheless, the information in there is damning. It's damning. It, um, as I point out in the article, <clears throat> One month before um, Operation Spoofing Telegram leaks were exposed by Greenwald, the, the head of PT in Congress, Congressman Paulo Pimenta, had prepared this dossier uh, full of all kinds of information, names about U.S. involvement in Operation Car Wash. And it even cited an article or two of mine in there, whatever. And he went to European Parliament and denounced the U.S. for... Um, helping put Lula in jail. And uh, then he went and met with a couple of members of Congress in the US as well to, to share this dossier. And his argument at the time was not that the US was a partner. He said the US was leading the entire thing. He said the whole thing is being led by the US Department of Justice. And these telegram uh, leaks that were published in The Intercept, 97 articles into their expose on Lava Jato, um, basically uphold what Pimenta was arguing, you know, back in 2019. And you're muted. Sorry about that. There's a quote from your piece here. In 2017, a document defining U.S. national security policy for the purpose of training special operations forces for non-conventional wars of the future. The Pentagon admitted that the fight against corruption could serve to destabilize U.S. competitors or enemies and it's just like yeah that's pretty much and i guess you guys also touch on like the qui bono or why did what was the motive for the yeah. u.s here exactly exactly yeah i mean i remember back in when the cold war ended <clears throat> when you know when the cold war ended in the early 90s people were saying well we have to defund the pen we have to defund the cia now you know we don't need them anymore and i remember hearing things like, well, the CIA could play an important role in helping the cause of our corporations overseas, you know, back then. And it seems like that's what a lot of things that it's been doing since then, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and that's an example, you know, using anti-corruption. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, talk about Moro's visit to the CIA. Mm-hmm. Or Bolsonaro's yeah, visit, I guess. The, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Because this is funny, because there's this whole kind of like edgelords community on Twitter that mm -hmm. uh, is pushing this false narrative that um, the Workers' Party, whose leader was jailed 
with help of the FBI and the DOJ, is secretly like a triple reverse 5D chess World Economic Forum pro-United States government operative or something. But (laughs) he never visited the CIA headquarters when he was president, nor did Dilma Rousseff, nor did any other president in Brazilian history. The first U.S. president to ever visit CIA headquarters was Jair Bolsonaro, two months after he took office. Remembering that uh, he appointed Moro as his justice minister, not just justice minister, he tried to give him a title called super justice minister, which would give him all these extra powers and put him in charge of intelligence and all of this stuff. And uh, the first thing, on his first visit to the U.S., they just went into CIA headquarters. La-di-da, the former governor of Paraná State, um, Humberto Hecchione, tweeted that, you know, he made a joke. He's like, is it true that Moro's Wi-Fi clicked in the second he walked into CIA headquarters? You know, (laughs) Moro, the Lamajato judge. And you know what? It probably did. I don't know, maybe. (laughs) But, and then, (laughs) so, so that's, that's a little bit unusual. You know, that's another, I mean, there's all kinds of extra circumstantial evidence that we have, you know, Mm -hmm. like why, why were there dozens of articles hundreds of articles in English language media just praising Sergio Moro out the yin-yang before he'd ever even arrested anybody or anything. You know, like all mm-hmm. of a sudden, this new super judge in Brazil fighting corruption one leg at a time, ignoring the fact that as a judge, you know, you're supposed to be just sitting there impartially judging a case. They should have been praising the prosecutors. Why are they already praising the judge in advance of him making a ruling about anything? They're just like buttering him up to, to convict Lula, is what they were doing. Like Time Magazine made him <clears throat> one of its, you know, 100 personalities of the year. Uh, right. Notre Dame uh, gave him a doctor of honoris causes, Notre Dame Law School, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and all kinds of us. I mean, you look, this America's Quarterly, which has the revolving door with uh, New York Times and Washington Post, that started from Rockefeller's desire to help overthrow the democratically elected Brazil uh, government of Brazil in 1964, helping uh, at request of Kennedy. They had a cover issue called Corruption Busters, where they had Sergio Moro uh, dressed up like one of the Ghostbusters. You know, and uh, this magazine of theirs is distributed freely in every airport VIP lounge in in the Americas. You know, like mm-hmm. it's a, it's something that's just given out to business elites and things like that. And so that's all evidence that uh, what you know, like Gramsci would call the extended state or the extent the expanded state. When you analyze a state, you don't just look at its government; you look at its corporations, its media, its academia all the institutions that uphold the um, hegemonic project. And so I immediately knew that the U.S. expanded state was supporting car wash and Lava Jato from the minute it started, from the way it was being treated in the press, right? So, um, and and in and other institutions up there. So, I mean, there's tons of, so there's all this extra, like, for example, another circumstantial evidence, piece of evidence is that the day that Lula was taken in to to his political imprisonment with no crime ever being committed. Uh, The head of the task force, the prosecution task force, joked on Telegram, look, we finally got our gift from the CIA. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that wouldn't count as a piece of actual proof, 
you know, but it's circumstantial. It's circumstantial is pretty damning. Yeah, it certainly adds a bit of color yeah, uh, to also. a pretty uh, a picture that's coming into focus. Um, well, Brian, uh, I will uh, link to the piece uh, and as well as your piece um, uh, on your delinking Brazil uh, uh, when Rosalind Carter confronted a dictator on a, of, over at bmier.substack.com. Um, Brian, thank you so much for uh, joining us and you know, congrats on getting this piece through a peer review. Thanks a lot, guys. Always great to be here. Yeah, good to uh, have Brian on. Now, folks, uh, this is the end of the first show. Uh, I'm going to go into the post game now. The post game is going to be available for everybody over on Twitch. Uh, that's probably how we'll be interacting. The, the YouTube will be live for uh, patrons as well, but uh, uh, you can uh, talk to me through the chats there. Um, and I should be live in about uh, 10 minutes or so. And we'll be listening to some LBJ tapes. Uh, you know, uh, I had to do it to you. Uh, see you in a little bit.